Welcome to Sellersburg United Methodist Church Podcast, where we bring our mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world to you, wherever you are. my friends and welcome to this fifth Sunday of the Easter tide as we continue to tell about what the resurrection means what the empty tomb signifies in our life and today we're going to come to the first Peter the letter that we call first Peter we're going to we're going to use this week and we're going to use next week and kind of follow a thought that we find from the author that helps us identify ourselves as a part of this new creation that bursted forth from the garden tomb, this new identity, this new family, this this exciting good news and how it comes and redefines us. And particularly in 1 Peter, we are dealing with a letter written to a community that is against a lot of struggle and resistance and persecution and, and much different than the persecution that I, I hear kind of described in our modern day Western world because we really haven't faced persecution like the places that exist around the globe where lives are threatened. And I want to talk about what that means for us where we are because we may not be facing persecution. We still have a calling and we still have a place. And so our calling, our charge, and our setting is still one we must take seriously, and we must rethink so much of the way that we understand our faith. And so we're going to dive into First Peter, and then we're going to talk about some of the images that are used here. And First Peter is pulling from Isaiah and from the Psalms to, to bring a lot of imagery into this. And so we hear about we being compared to a nursing infant. We we are going to be compared to stones, and, and we're going to be compared to the people of God, the, the structure of God, the temple of God, and so all these images that may seem kind of strange as you hear me read them, we're going to talk a little bit about what that means for us to reimagine how this impacted first century Christians in their setting in the midst of this, this threat, and so let us dive right in and reading from the, the Kingdom New Testament. And we're reading 1 Peter, beginning in chapter 1, verse 22, and reading through chapter 2, verse 10. And so it reads like this. Once your lives have been purified by obeying the truth, resulting in a sincere love for all your fellow believers, love one another eagerly, from a pure heart. You have been born again, not from seed which decays, but from seed which does not, through the living and abiding word of God. Because you see, all flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. That is the word that was announced to you, 
So put away all evil, all deceitful, hateful malice, and all ill speaking. As newborn babies, long for the spiritual milk, the real stuff, not watered down. That is what will make you grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Come to him, to that living stone. Humans rejected him, but God chose him and values him very highly. Like living stones yourselves, you are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices that will be well-pleasing to God through Jesus the Messiah. That's why it stands in Scripture. Look, I'm setting up in Zion a chosen precious cornerstone. Believe in him. You'll not be ashamed. He is indeed precious for you believers. But when people don't believe, the stone which the builders rejected has become the head cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble as they disobey the word, which indeed was their destiny. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession. Your purpose is to announce the virtuous deeds of the one who called you out of darkness into his amazing light. Once you were no people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for the scripture, for those who wrote in the distant past, to those who needed the words in the distant past. And as we consider what they did and received and what was at work in your spirit, we celebrate that you are at work still. So help us to hear the message as it was written, that we then may bring it through your spirit into our lives and our reality this day. And Lord, help us. Help us to remove the things that don't belong in our expectations. And help us to embrace the things we should in your expectations. Lord, may we hear you in spite of ourselves. May I be heard. May you be heard through me in spite of me. Lord, may all that we hear and see let us pray. Lord, I thank you for the scripture that we have this day. Those who wrote long ago to the people, your church long ago, and all that they needed, I thank you that you provided. I thank you that you provide still through that message, through that encounter. And Lord, I ask that you help us to join those who wrote and heard so long ago and that we may experience through your spirit a fresh word this day. Help us to hear you in spite of ourselves and speak through me in spite of me. And Lord, may all that we see and all that we hear and say and do and become be pleasing and acceptable to you. Lord, you 
and you alone are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this passage, it brings a lot of symbols and imagery from the Old Testament. A lot of things that this new church would have been hungry for because they don't have the New Testament. There is no Bible. Anytime we find the words scripture and referred to in the New Testament, it's referring to what we call the Old Testament because that's all that existed. The scrolls that different synagogues might have that some of the Jewish leaders like Paul or like a Peter or like John or like the, any other disciples that were traveling around, they knew the scriptures and they brought them with them and interpreted through the scripture the meaning and the events of Jesus Christ. And so these old images lent themselves wonderfully to help people you know, grasp uh, and, and have a concept of what this new truth about Jesus Christ, this rabbi carpenter God-man from the outskirts of Israel to a church that exists in Asia Minor, some distance away, where everyone there who's been a Gentile has grown up with temples everywhere, with lots of gods and lots of stories about how everything came to be. How do they integrate this new story of what we call the gospel, the good news, the proclamation, the announcement of God's reign and rule? What does that mean for them? What does it mean for them in that history? And then how do they take that history and understand what it means for their world and their understanding of themselves? It is quite a task that some of these early first century or, or I guess late first century writers and, and teachers had to do to bring this new revelation to, to these churches and to let us carry it forward into our world and continue to speak to us today. It's just, it's, it's a miracle that the Holy Spirit is within us, that the word Jesus Christ is able to help us enter into these stories, to enter into this letter and to grasp for ourselves and understand ourselves through what they experienced. And so what we find in the passage is a pretty simple message that then we need to take and apply. So the message builds upon the idea that they have left the old life behind, the life that they knew, the gods that they knew, the worldview that they knew, the story about themselves and their history and, and where all of life is headed and what they were taught, what they grew up with, they had to leave that behind and take on this new story. The new story that it's not about who has the, the biggest sword and the strongest army, leads and has authority. Rather, in this story, it is a crucified king who actually has authority. It's a strange story. What we find is that the people of God are not to be rough and tough and powerful by the world's definition. Rather, they are to be powerful by God's definition. And that definition is spelled out so many times, and we often miss it because we still have a hard time removing ourselves from the idea of power in our world. So we think power in our world is having the bigger gun or the bigger bomb, right? Uh, is having influence and authority. But we find in the New Testament so many times, and here it's love. It's forgiveness. It's gentleness, humility, service. That is where the power lies. And so the beginning of the passage, once you've been purified by obeying the truth, and the word obeying in the Greek, it, it isn't a threat like we often use it, you know, obey me or else. Obeying means listen closely 
closely, as in eliminate distraction and hear what's being said. It says once your lives have been purified by listening closely to the truth, it results in a sincere love, a sincere love for your fellow believers, love that allows us to love eagerly, which is the calling that we're given. And it's from a pure heart. It is not to get what we want. It is not to seek out what we think should be happening. And that's really hard because some of us really like that fruit from Genesis 3, the knowledge of good and evil. We want to judge. We think we know what's good and we think we know what's evil. And so sometimes our actions, even as Christians, is to seek out what we have decided is right and wrong. And here it says, love eagerly from a pure heart, which means there is no ulterior motive. There's no, uh, there's no sense of, you know, if you do this, then I'll love you. It's, it's not anything for us whatsoever. It has no desire to manipulate. It simply loves to love because that's where power is. That's where life is. And how do we know this? Because Jesus Christ is our example. And the author actually uses the word that means example later, uh, just beyond this passage. And th the meaning of this example I'll liken to my daughters who are four and haven't yet learned how to write their name. So their preschool teacher writes their name for them with a highlighter marker on their coloring page. And then they are asked to use a pencil or crayon to to trace over what their teacher has written and they start to learn how to write their name. Christ is that example upon which we trace, upon which we mimic our actions. Christ is the word. Christ is the example. And we are still like children in our faith, still learning what this means. So we follow the pattern, the example of Jesus Christ. Not only that, but it goes further because it starts talking about that Christ is the cornerstone and we are stones. So this idea is, is being presented as in the leaders in Israel, the people that should have seen Jesus for who he was, should have gotten it, should have recognized God at work in him, didn't. Because they had their expectations. Because they were eating of the fruit and they thought they knew what was good and what was evil. And because Christ didn't recognize, wasn't recognizable through their expectations, they rejected him and killed him. Part of that is because following the way of Christ means we have to give up the worldly power. And people in power don't really like to be asked to give up their power. And we are no different. A lot of us have a lot of power, a lot more than we realize. And Christ is going to ask us to give that up. And so we have to decide, are we going to be loving in a pure heart? Or is there a line that we won't cross with what we're willing to give up? All that to say, not only are we being led in the example, led in the path of Christ, as we learn and as we grow and, and let go of our expectation and, and truly grasp what God is offering, we are then stones, okay? It's a, a strange idea, but the idea is talking about building of a temple. So the whole Jewish story through which Jesus came and fulfilled was of this great exile. They had experienced the exile of Babylon, but ultimately the story is about God's people did not follow the will and way of God. And you can look through the Old Testament and the Hebrew scriptures and see where that's the case again and again and again. 
And so the idea was they came back to the land, yes. They rebuilt the temple, yes. They reclaimed the law, God's word, to try to reintegrate this new way into their identity as a people, as a holy people who didn't follow the way of the world, but followed the way of God. You know, the, the big 10, you love your, you know, it's all about loving your neighbor and loving God, not stealing, not, not lying, not killing each other, um, honoring God, only God. You know, the big 10 in Exodus 20, you can go and look that up. They had rectified or, or reclaimed all of these things, but they were awaiting God to come and refill the temple because the temple and their understanding is where God promised to exist with them all the way back in Exodus with the tabernacle. God would always come and be with them. And in the presence of these people, it's as if heaven and earth were, would overlap and meet and be one. And so eventually David and Solomon, they built the temple like a permanent housing residence for God. It was destroyed and they were exiled, but they had rebuilt it. But they were waiting for God to come and fill the temple once again, so that they could truly know that the covenant God had made with them, that they were going to be God's people, would be fully fulfilled. They were waiting. Well, in 70 AD, shortly after Christ died, the temple was destroyed and has never again been rebuilt. So they're awaiting the understanding of where is God's temple? We are God's temple. We are the stones. Christ is the cornerstone for the new presence and existence of God, not in a building, but within hearts and souls and bodies, ours. And when we follow that example, even when we're infants, even when we're unsure, even when we haven't learned it all, when we still have our expectations, we haven't fully let go in the midst of our purification, we are not only laid in the example of Christ, but we become the very fabric of the temple, not a temple of stone, even though the word is used, we are a temple of flesh and blood and within us is the presence of God and we are everywhere. There are Christians all around this planet. God's temple is everywhere. When we follow the example of Christ, when we purify ourselves and become part of this great pure love, become God's people, we become God's temple and the presence of God is everywhere. We are called to be the presence of God, to house the presence of God, to bring the presence of God everywhere. Everywhere we go, we can do this. No one can keep the presence of God out. That's true. We have a hard time understanding this, but it's true. So we have to think about what's that look like in our world. Some of us think that we are persecuted in, in our country. We're, we're not. It doesn't mean that everyone accepts our ways, but persecution is experienced around this this world where people are killed and tortured, that doesn't happen with us for our faith. We can come here on Sunday morning and not have fear that because of our faith, we're in danger. Um, that doesn't mean there's not evil in the world. There certainly is. We have to think about what does it mean to be the temple and presence of God in our society, in our worlds. In their world, it meant being set apart and a people that were ridiculed and unlike anybody they'd ever seen, in which case this author keeps telling them, don't give in. Don't give in. If you're ridiculed, don't ridicule back. If you're accused, don't be guilty and give them an excuse to accuse you. If you suffer, suffer as Christ suffered, knowing, knowing that death is an empty threat. 
And so we think of our world today, and, and you can apply this in a number of ways. There's one way that has kind of been fresh on my mind, and uh, it's a very simple way for us to understand this. And I'll liken it to my trip I took to Israel uh, last year, two years ago, and we got to go to the Temple Mount, which now the Dome of the Rock sits upon the Temple Mount. And when we got up there, it's, it's controlled by the Islamic faith, a uh, particular Islamic group that is, con, you know, controls the Dome of the Rock. And they have rules. And so you can't wear shorts. Um, you know, men and women, husbands and wives can't show affection up there. They want that space to be holy and set apart. And so we can come and, and be around the building. But they did say you are not to pray as you are used to praying in a sign of Christian prayer. Please don't do that. And so there are two responses that I could have made with that request. One allowed my ego to take over and say, how dare you tell me not to pray? I could have made it all about me and a power struggle and responded to this kind of restriction with my own, what I would say is ungodly response. Or I said, okay, we won't, no problem. And I walked around that space and considered all the history that's occurred on that mountain all the things that have happened. And I prayed. I prayed with my eyes open, with my hands at my side, in stillness and quiet, looking around that incredible space. I prayed the whole time. I didn't need to make sure I did it in a way that showed defiance and stubbornness. I didn't need to create turmoil for other people. That's kind of the opposite of prayer, isn't it? If I had done this and said, I'm gonna do what I wanna do, I'm not praying. I'm making a point about me and what I think is right and, and trying to be the judge upon the people that had asked me not to pray. So I chose not to do that. I chose to abide and give them no reason to find fault in me. And still I prayed and connected with God. And I hope that the peace through which I tried to respond, and I'm not perfect, but I hope that that peace made their heart a little lighter, a little softer. I think about prayer in schools today because I hear people say we need to have prayer in school. And people often get pretty angry when they talk about it. My question is, why can't you pray in school? Anyone can pray in school. Everyone can pray in school at any time. Now, can you force others to pray with you? No, and you probably shouldn't. That doesn't sound like love to me. That sounds like stubbornness and a quest for some power and authority by the world standards. Can you pray like this and pray out loud and disrupt your class? No. Why would you want to? Why would you want to do that? That's my question. Uh, if, if we're trying to be a light to the world of the gentle, pure, sacrificial love of Christ, then we give no reason for people to doubt our motives. None. We, don't, we can't be shut out. But we can say no to fighting back by the rules and and ways of the world. We don't have to make a big stink on prayer in school. We can just pray and allow others to see our gentle, loving example. And I guarantee you that will win hearts over long before shouting and fighting and forcing ever could. And so we think about what's this mean in your world? Where are you feeling the hesitation or the resistance from people who just think you're weird or who don't like your Christian practice. 
You are facing it. I, I have no doubt there are probably places where you don't feel comfortable to share and talk about the things that excite you and ignite your heart. So when you are limited, do you respond with a raised fist? Or do you respond with a pure heart, eager to love, eager to become the temple, the presence of God who comes to bring mercy and love and peace through Jesus Christ, who was willing to suffer ridicule and mockery all the way to the cross and beyond, and the whole time offered forgiveness and love and mercy. Our calling is to be a different people. And when we come up against resistance, we don't respond in the same manner. We allow our response to be holy and set apart in something different to this world. And out of the darkness, may God's marvelous light shine within us because the Holy Spirit is always leading you into a deeper truth, into deeper love, into a more holy existence if we just let her. So my friends, say yes. Say yes to the example of Jesus Christ. Follow the Holy Spirit and allow your life to be laid with the cornerstone till you become the very presence of God yourself in such a way that people know there is something life-giving about what you are a part of. And may all that we do bring glory and honor to no other name than Jesus Christ. Amen. We thank you for joining us today. And it is our hope that you have experienced the blessing of God through our time together. If you'd like to know more about our church community and its ministries, visit our website at sellersburgumc.com.